0: Recently I was having a conversation with someone and they said they had a theological question for me. I said, Oh yes, here we go. I I love these situations. And so here was their question. They said that they used to go to a church where I can't recall what the relationship was, maybe a family member, a friend, something like that, would went to the church as well. And they were really excited about the Lord initially, but Soon their excitement waned, and due to church politics, whatever that means, uh, they ended up abandoning the church and becoming a Wiccan. And then they said, But I know that you can't lose your salvation, so what's the status of this person? Hmm. How would you answer that question? What would you say? Well, here's what I said. I said, There is a debate among theologians on whether someone can lose their salvation or not. But what is not debated is whether whether someone abandons the Lord and becomes an apostate, whether they'll be saved. And I said, well, at least there shouldn't be. And the reason I said, well, at least there shouldn't be is, sadly, there is a discussion about this among some. Some have so confused the plain meaning of so many scriptures that they would even question whether somebody becomes an unbeliever if they're still somehow a believer and that they will be saved. Such is most certainly not the case. So then I explained to them, again, the question is not about whether if someone becomes an apostate, abandons Christ, whether they'll be saved, but whether or not a true believer can ever become such a person. So really the question isn't about their current status, but about their previous status. Namely, was this person truly born again, or did they simply profess? But the Bible is very clear. The ark, of, the ark is a symbol of Christ. If you're in the Ark, you'll be saved. You need to actually get to the other side in order to be saved. He who endures to the end shall be saved. So that was my answer. The question I have for you is, again, how would you answer this? You don't have to answer it the way I answered it, but how would you answer it? Well, I think our passage here could be another way to answer it. If you just turn over to 1 John, chapter 1, look through verses 5 through 9, you can also have an answer when somebody asks you this question: "So and so used to be a believer, now they're unbeliever. What is their salvific status?" So, in light of that, please turn to 1 John, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 10. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John now begins to unpack the message which he has heard from him who was from the beginning. We focused on the beginning of the epistle last time, and we saw that he starts to uh, unpack and starts to want to communicate that the eternal word, the eternal Lagos, the eternal second person of the Trinity that's always been with the Father. They have seen, they have touched, they have heard, and now they proclaim this message to you so you can have fellowship with the apostles and namely have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And this communication, this fellowship that they would gain with them in the Godhead, or the three persons of the Trinity, would make their joy Full. So John now wants to start to unpack. He said, I'm going to proclaim this message to you. And now here is the message that he has heard and seen from him who is eternal. He begins with these words, this message that he heard from him and proclaims to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. What he is saying is that God is perfectly good and in him there is absolutely no sin. We should never think of God as morally deficient. We should never think that God needs to somehow grow in holiness or that God's ways are truly not pure and we know better. Such a thought is utter blasphemy. It's slander to the character of God. Think about Isaiah chapter 6 when you have the angels of the Lord. What do they say about the Lord God? Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. God is thrice holy, holy. The repetition of holy, holy, holy probably doesn't point to the Trinity, but actually probably points to the magnificence of the holiness of God. It's the highest. Sometimes we have, whoa, whoa, amen, amen. In fact, even in the Bible, sometimes you'll see that such and such fell into a a big ditch or a great ditch. But in the actual original language, they didn't say great ditch. They said a ditch ditch, a ditch of a ditch. This is the way they emphasize something. God is the most holy. What about us? Isaiah, in that same passage, says this, when he sees the Lord who is holy, 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 he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now think about Isaiah. Isaiah was probably much more godly than all of us, if we're honest. This was a prophet of the Lord. This man was literally commanded by the Lord to either walk around naked or walk around in a very strict form for several years. Something tells me that many of us would really struggle to obey the Lord with such a command. But this man was faithful. This man was a very holy and godly man, and yet when he saw the Lord, he said, I'm undone. I'm falling apart. I am unclean. So in comparison to God, even someone who is much more holy than all of us is still filthy and unclean before God. God is holy, we are impure. Even as Christians, we are impure in comparison to him. In Genesis 18, verse 25, we hear these words, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is holy, you're not. God is right, we are often wrong. And that's why Romans chapter 11 says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who indeed? Certainly not you. Certainly not me. These words cannot be described to any created being, cannot be described certainly not of us. Only the Lord is this great. Only the Lord needs no counselor, for he is pure wisdom himself. We cannot find fault in the Lord because he is pure, he is wise, he is holy. All of his ways are right, even though often many of our ways are crooked. And so in the end, when we see all that God was doing, we will say, he is good. He is holy, and his way was the best way. That's the eyes of faith. That's what we know that we will see. At last, we'll see, God, I know what you were doing. I no longer have any more questions for you. I sit in silence, and I see your answer. And think about the book of Job. Isn't that what happened in the book of Job? Remember the whole drama of Job? Job was a holy and righteous man, and his friends, not really good friends, but his friends keep saying, you're wicked, you're vile, you committed adultery, you, you strip people, you've done something wicked. Only God would punish you if you're wicked. And Job keeps saying, you're lying, you're lying. God is unjustly doing this to me. If only I could speak to the Lord. His ways are not right. His ways are not right. Well, then God comes up to Job, and the end of Job, this is what Job replies after God begins to question him. You question me, says God, well, I will question you. And here's Job's reply after all of that happens. He says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this who obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears have heard you. My eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust. And in ashes. We don't need to go through the same scene ourselves with God. We can learn from Job. Job says, God says to Job, well, actually, Job says to God, Surely I've spoken things that I do not understand, things too wonderful for me. That's us. We don't see clearly, we see dimly and faintly, but we can see this truth, that which is found in God's Word. And we can hold on to the truth that God is perfectly righteous. There is no darkness in him. He is pure light. And so as you go through life, and as you age, as you have pains, as you have sickness, as you bury people, as you go through depression and doubt and fear and anxiety, remember, God is still good. God is still holy. God is righteous. Never doubt the goodness of God. Always come back here. Also, as you sometimes wrestle with deep and perplexing theological beliefs that make you wonder, is God really good? Two things. One, your theology might be wrong. Be humble. Recognize you might be wrong. Second, even if you're convinced you are right, because we all think we're right, right? That's why we believe it. Recognize this truth. God is good even if you can't see it. God is still good. God is pure light. let's think rightly about God and think about how good and holy he is and recognize that God is pure, always pure, and his ways are always right, even if we can't see it. The second application we can discover about this truth that God is light and in him there is no darkness is the very point that he's going to make in verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I can summarize this in one word or a little sentence. Tark is cheap. Tark is easy. You can say how amazing and how strong I am and how, how powerful I am. Uh, I had Peter over at my house the other day, and I was joking with him. We had a ping-pong table, and I said to him, We'll see if you score two points. Tark was cheap. He beat me every game. <laughs> it was not good. It's easy to say words, but to back it up is another thing. And this is what's going on here. They're saying. They believe that they walk with God, and yet they walk in darkness. And what does the scripture say? Maybe, don't judge them, who knows, we can't see the heart. He says, no, no, you lie. You do not tell the truth. You're a liar. Jesus prophesied that there will be many people like that who think, despite the fact that they walk in darkness, that they have fellowship with God. And Jesus said about these people in Matthew 7, 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say, Depart from me, you people who did not properly understand the gospel. Does he say that? Go search. Matthew 7, 21, see what he says. It does not say that. There's nothing in that text to suggest that the problem of these people is that they didn't understand the gospel. The problem with these people is they didn't believe that gospel. And that was demonstrated by the fact that they were workers of lawlessness. In other words, they walked in the darkness and claimed to be in the light, and Jesus said, I never knew you, you're a liar. I don't have fellowship with you. We're not supposed to be fruit inspectors. I don't know where they're getting that from. Because Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. And so, too, you will know yourself by your fruits. If you look at your tree and it's diseased and all these bad fruits are coming off it, well, then you're a bad tree. And, in fact, no matter what you say, no matter if you can ace a theological quiz, you are not a child of God. That's the truth. It's a hard truth, but it is the truth. That a tree can be known by its fruit, so a believer can be known by their actions and by their deeds. And so what's going on here is this. The idea is this. That God is light, and God is pure, and God is holy. So if you're going to say that I have fellowship, I have communion, I have a relationship with God, but yet you are walking in darkness, that of course cannot be true, can it? Because God's not going to join you in the darkness you must join him in the light. So all you have to do is ask yourself, am I living a life of darkness? Am I living a life where I'm hiding from the truth? Think about a roach. I don't know if any of you have ever had the displeasure of living with roaches, but I have. And these are some nasty, vile creatures. And one of the things that are interesting about roaches is as soon as you don't really see them during the day. You see evidence of them, you see the poop, You see the dead bodies. If you ever see a dead roach, you know you got an infestation. When one roach is found, many are also to come. But you don't really see them during the day. They're really quite good at hiding. But then at night, they come out. And then sometimes, you'll wake up and go in the bathroom and turn on the light. Or go in the kitchen and turn on the light. And you'll see them. And they'll start running everywhere. Hiding back into the darkness. See, that's how sin is. Sin is like a roach. It hates the light. It doesn't want to be exposed. It doesn't want to be seen. But then when darkness come out, they come out. And then they begin to play. And the question is, is that our lives? Do we have one appearance in the light in the day on Sunday? But then at home, we're a different person. And every other week, we live in the darkness. We're hiding. We're living double lives. We're doing things that nobody knows about. Well, except God. God knows. God sees. God hears. And if we're walking in the darkness, we're in fact not walking with God. And if you think about it, this refusal to come to the light of God, this double life, this living in darkness, is precisely why people reject the gospel in the first place. That's what John 3.19 says. It says this there. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light... It does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. The light reveals. The light shows what's really there. And we should be living lives where we can be upfront with people. What you see is what you get. If you see holiness in public, you'll see holiness in private. You don't just put on a fake and an act for other people because God sees it. And he contrasts this group of people who hide from the light, lest their deeds be exposed. with another group of people, he says in the very next verse, who he describes this way, he says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He's not afraid of the light, right? Because he knows that God sees and God approves. And that is the life of the Christian, one of walking in the light with him who is in the light. And again, if we walk in darkness and not in the light, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That wicked if they do believe that they're saved, they're deceiving themselves. If you believe they're saved, you're deceiving yourself. They're walking in the darkness, and they're not in the light, and they do not have fellowship with him. Verse 7 now gives us the positive side of the equation. We've seen the negative side of people walking in darkness, but verse 7 tells us what it looks like to walk in the light. Verse 7 says this, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So, positively, if we're living holy lives, if we've made a true profession of Jesus Christ, if He really has caused us to be born again and new creatures in Christ, and we live out that faith and union with Him, we have the positive knowledge that we have communion with God, that we walk with God. Does anyone know where the first case in the Bible of someone walking with God is? Can Anybody think of it? Adam, in the very beginning, he walked with God. He had fellowship with God. When was that broken? The fall. All of a sudden, God comes to visit. God comes walking. Adam comes running or goes running. Well, when we have been reconciled with God, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So now we can now walk with God once again. He restores that which is broken. Our emotional, spiritual connection with God has been reestablished, and one day, one day we'll get new resurrected bodies and we will walk with God again. What is true spiritually will also be true physically in that day. So if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we truly have fellowship with one another. Now, it's interesting it says with one another. There is uh, some question about with, with one another, what that refers to. Uh, I, on first glance and even on second glance, think that that's probably referring to with God, where fellowship with one another means God. But many of the commentaries say that that actually has to do with having fellowship with your fellow believer. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Both are true, right? We have fellowship with one another who has fellowship with God. We walk as a unit. And this is kind of why I really like Pilgrim's Progress Part 2 more than Pilgrim's Progress Part 1. Because in Pilgrim's Progress Part 2, there's a whole group going to the celestial city, and they help each other out. And that's so much more realistic than Pilgrim's Progress Number 1, where it's just me all alone and maybe one buddy. You all on with one body are probably not going to make it too far. But you with the church that God has established we brought into the kingdom of God. Notice also what benefit we have besides just union with each other and union with the Father and, of course, union with the Son. It also says here that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Salvation can be obtained by none other. We need Jesus Christ, and we need his death and his resurrection. And we need the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us. One of my favorite pictures of this imagery of the blood of Jesus Christ being applied to us and cleansing us from all sin is actually the Passover. Remember the Passover? They had to kill a lamb and then take the blood of the lamb and apply it to their house, to their resident, to themselves. And then when judgment came, judgment passed over them. So we too must apply the blood of Jesus to ourselves so that now judgment will be passed over. Salvation is to be obtained by no other. There was no other way to be saved. I mean, just imagine, during that Passover night, you have your shotgun out there. You're ready to go. Your baby's going to die. It won't survive. you and in the shotgun. You can hold your baby. Nothing's going to save the baby except you apply the blood of Jesus. No amount of good works. No matter praying, you could pray anything. You could want, I don't want to be harmed by the angel of death. It did not matter. You had to do it God's way. You had to apply the blood. There was nothing else. And here's an interesting other point about that. How much faith did you need for the blood to be effective on that Passover night? What if you had a little bit of faith? Was it good enough? What if you had a huge amount of faith? Right? Did it really matter? No. It didn't as long as you had enough faith to apply the blood to your house, the angel would pass over. And so too is the Christian faith. Some have great faith, some have small faith. You just need enough faith to apply Jesus Christ's blood to you and the death angel will pass over. Or as our pastor says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Salvation can be obtained by no other means and by no other person. And that's exactly what First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says. It says there, for there is one God And there was one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See the connection. Both verses are important. How is it that God and man have the mediator, Christ Jesus? How is it that Christ can be a mediator between you and God? Very next verse. He gave himself as a ransom for all. You can have Christ's mediation because of his death, because of his blood. you put the blood, God is appeased. Your sins are expiated, they're removed. God has propitiated. God now is satisfied with you. Or as 1 John, John 1.12 says, for all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God. God cleanses you of your sins and adopts you as his own son. Hebrews 9.12 contrasts the blood of bulls and goats that would be sprinkled on defiled persons that were ceremonially unclean and contrasts that with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Just as those blood of bulls and goats would make them ceremonially clean, so the blood of Christ makes us truly, truly clean, and so that we can have a good conscience. You don't have to worry about those old sins. You don't have to worry about those past sins. They're all gone. You are now a child of God. Now notice, though, in our passage, we've been focusing primarily on the past tense reality, that God has cleansed you from all your sin. So look closely at what it says in that verse, verse 7. It says, God cleanses us from all sin. And notice that cleanses is in the present tense. So what's going on there? Well, what's going on here is that not only has Christ cleansed you from past sins, but he continues to cleanse you from present sins, start to finish. The righteous shall live from faith to faith. The blood of Christ didn't only just save you in the past, but it saves you in the present. It's only his blood that you can be forgiven of all of your sins. It's kind of like, it's strange. Some people in the early church thought that baptism saved them. And so what they would do is, and they thought that baptism cleansed you of your previous sins. So, but if you sinned after baptism, and they make these weird distinctions between mortal sin and, and venial sin, all these are unbiblical categories. You won't find them anywhere in the Bible. And so they would say is that baptism removes all sin, mortal or venial, but then after baptism... If you committed mortal sins, you're doomed. So what do you think people would do? They would delay baptism to the very last moment so they can wipe away all the sins and then die and get out of here. Well, that's not the way it is. Right? The blood of Christ cleanses you from start to finish. When you have the blood of Christ, it cleanses you from all your past sins. And now as a Christian, as you have ongoing sin, what cleanses you? Not your good works. It's not your penitence. It's not whipping yourself and lashing yourself. It's still that same blood. We start with the blood, we end with the blood, and that's what it's talking about. The blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. Or, if you want some Bible to explicitly say this, John chapter 13 with the famous ceremony of foot washing where Jesus washes Simon's feet. And you recall, here's Jesus taking on in even a more uh, humble way, taking on the form of a servant. He took on the form of a servant by being a man, and now he takes on even more of the form of a servant by being the servant of a man and by gowning himself in the servant's garb to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet, Lord. Don't ever say that to God. You will never do this. The Lord's going to get his way. You should rather say what Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. But, of course, Peter is like much of us, and we say, you'll never do this. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Let me stop here. I like Peter. He puts his foot in his mouth. And he immediately repents and says, okay, I'm down. Wash it all. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to be washed, except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So we see two parts of this cleanliness, don't we? Right? He, he's completely clean, so that's why Jesus doesn't need to bathe him. He's completely clean based on his union with Christ, the fact that he's a disciple of Jesus by the blood. But he needs to bathe his feet because as we walk through this world, we get dirty. And we need to cleanse ourselves. And that cleansing is this daily cleansing of Jesus Christ. That's why it says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. We continuously need to be cleansed. And we have a little bit of time and we'll try to wrap this up. So let's look through the next three verses quickly. So the next three verses say this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. and His word is not in us. So here we have the deniers would be those who say, no, I don't need the continuous cleansing ministry of Jesus. Why? Because I'm completely clean, and I don't get dirty anymore. These are people who say that they have sinless perfection. They don't need it anymore. They used to be a sinner, but not anymore. Some people say that. I was a sinner, but now I'm a saint. Well, there's some truth to that. It depends on what they mean by that. But if you mean by that, I used to sin, but I don't sin anymore, Again, take a look at this passage, because this passage is directly, directly addressing that type of person. And it's saying that that type of person, you're deceived, and the truth is not in you. We all sin. And so what this does is this counterbalances the very beginning of the sermon about whether if we walk in light or we walk in darkness. See, we can walk in light, but we still need to be cleansed by Jesus' blood. And so what this is saying is this, that there's a difference between living in sin and falling into sin. There's a big difference. We all fall into sin and if we say we don't fall into sin we're completely deceived and we know nothing. We don't know God's law. We don't know his spirit. His spirit not working in us because if his spirit is working in us it's going to be convicting us of the violations of his own law. But that's a big difference between stumbling into sin and having seasons of sin and hating it and fighting it and getting back up and wrestling again and just living in it and being a complete pretender and a faker. So We have to clearly distinguish those categories. But yes, we do sin continuously, and that's why we continuously need the blood of Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 tells us how we should respond to our sin on a daily basis. What does it say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the context. This is not talking about initial salvation. This is talking about the ongoing sin life of a believer. And it's saying, for the ongoing sin life of a believer, what are you to do? You to confess your sins. That's completely biblical. What should you do when you mess up? When you become that person that you don't want to become? Confess your sins. He's going to forgive you of that. And the forgiveness here is talking about reconciliation of the fellowship that we have with God. I'm, I'm sure we've all been there, right? We've all sinned and we feel distant from God. We feel like Adam again, right? We feel convicted. The means of grace that used to build us up now convict us. We want to hide again. But when we confess those sins, then we're reconciled once again. The fellowship, the union. Not that we lose our salvation, but we lose the relationship, that positive relationship we have with God. And you can have that back by confessing your sins. But I, I actually love this verse. In fact, I actually remember I memorized this verse with a friend of mine in one night, and then he forgot that same verse, but I never forgot it. Because the reason I love this verse so much is actually not that first part. Uh, Maybe we're just soaked in the gospel so much I understand that God will forgive me of my sins. But really that last part. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that part. You know why? Here's what I think it means. I think that when we sin and we mess up spectacularly, not only will God forgive us, but he'll cleanse us. He'll restore us. What is the way of healing? It's not to punish yourself when you sin, but it's to confess it. And he'll cleanse you. That's how we... Get out of it. And that's what I've seen in my own life. If you fall into sin and you confess it, you might fall into it again, but you'll be stronger next time. That God is working that sin out of you. God is building you up. He's cleansing you from that unrighteousness. So confess your sins as you sin, and he will cleanse you from it. Say, God, I don't want to do this again. Help me. Help me overcome. He will provide a way. And this, by the way, explains the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? You remember the Lord's Prayer? Here's what it says. Our Father who is in heaven... Hallowed be your name. I don't want to preach a quick sermon on that, but hallowed be your name means glorify your name, by the way. So, this is not, we shouldn't just say this and not know what these things mean. When we say our Father in heaven, right, we're talking about Heavenly Father, we say your name should be hallowed. We're saying, God, let your name be glorified in the world and in me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Who is praying this? A believer. You know, I heard someone once say that we shouldn't pray this prayer because we don't need to pray, forgive us of our debts. Where are you getting that from? (laughs) Of course we do. We need to do that on a daily basis. And to prove that, every day you need food. That's why you say, give us this day our daily bread. And every day you should say to the Lord, forgive me of my debts. As every day I forgive my debtors. This is the promise that we have in Christ, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Of our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. As I conclude this sermon, I just ask you to examine yourself. Look at the Word of God. Not what I say, but the Word of God. Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in darkness? If you walk in darkness, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But if you walk in light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins and we have fellowship with Him. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much for the wonderful gospel. We don't have to be saved by our good works, we can't even be saved that way. We don't have to be saved in any other way. Again, we can't be saved in any other way. But we can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and him alone. God, we ask that you were to help us to walk in that light. And Lord, as we stumble, as we always do, that we would come back to the blood, come back to the cross, cry out once more, just like we got saved. We got saved this way, Lord. And we still need to keep coming back to you, confessing our sins. But we know that you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen.